The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. This is a special edition. Mr. Nagley is not here with us now. He uh, actually went on a family trip to Round Top, New York, where the sisters uh, made the advancement in the spiritual life and their, their religious life, and uh, he safely returned to us, thank goodness. But uh, because of the long trip, I'm going to be taking care of the uh, program tonight myself. This is Father William Jenkins with Immaculate Conception Church. I'm a priest of the Society of St. Pius V. Now, questions have come up recently concerning the matter of vindicating our position as traditional Catholics. Over the last 50 plus years, we, as traditional Catholics, have been called upon to justify our position as traditional Catholics. There are those who uh, accuse us of being disobedient, uh, renegades, even schismatics. And um, so we've gotten used to giving an explanation, not as uh, a, an apology, but as an apologia, as an explanation of our position and why we believe it is the right thing to do. There are many critics, of course, and uh, I know that I can't answer all those critics tonight. I don't intend to, actually. Uh, rather, I think it best just to give a kind of catechism-level uh, response to uh, those who would ask, well, on what basis or what grounds do we as traditional Catholics uh, do what we do and hold fast to the traditional Catholic religion, uh, which is simply putting into practice the traditional Catholic faith. <clears throat> what grounds can we do that when we've been ordered uh, by the Vatican to cease and desist and to accept Vatican II and all that has come from it. Uh, well, uh, let me also say, by the way, in offering this little uh, catechetical level vindication for the traditional Catholic position that I, I'm not necessarily the best qualified person to do this. I understand that. I don't claim to be. Never did claim to be. Um, but I can tell you what my position is anyway, and what is satisfactory to me. So uh, please don't think I'm speaking for everyone. And giving my own personal position on this, I, I uh, realize that there are other traditional Catholics, traditional priests, uh, perhaps even those with whom I'm working and whom I'm associated with, who uh, might uh, have a different slant on things, and I understand that very well. And uh, we have to be a bit flexible in our position these days. Uh, in any case, um, you see, it's a mistake to try to debate anyone who has essentially only one rule of engagement, and that is, you're wrong, I'm right. And no matter what you say, it means nothing to me because I've already decided that what you say doesn't count, doesn't matter, has nothing to do with reality, my reality. <laughs> In other words, they're existentialists. They've come to their conclusion 
and uh, nothing uh, that pertains to reality can, is going to move them. They've already basically told you, I'm not listening to a word you say. I place no value on what you're saying. So it's a mistake to engage someone like that. And I find there are people like that uh, <clears throat> who uh, say they're Catholics. We, we have traditional Catholics, quote unquote, who have that position that, you, you, that they just are very um, closed-minded and they don't even hear what the other person has to say, let alone respond to it. They just ignore it, change the subject. But very often we find that the new Catholics, the modern Catholics, do have that problem, that they do not listen to what the traditional Catholics say. They simply dismiss it offhand, and, uh, or they even ridicule it, or just simply change the subject if they have no, no answer. <clears throat> and uh, it's a mistake to engage with someone like that in conversation, because there is no engagement, period. It's, uh, it, it can le only lead to arguments and quarrels. Um, because as far as they're concerned, that's what it's all about. It's simply an argument or a quarrel. It has nothing to do with a matter of principle. So um, I just warn uh, traditional Catholics in particular to uh, be wary of uh, trying to engage someone like that in a, in a sincere, uh, and, uh, sincere conversation about the, the question facing the church especially with regard to your position as a traditional Catholic, when the other person uh, has already uh, charged you, tried you, condemned you, and executed you in, in his or her mind anyway. So uh, be very wary of, of engaging someone like that. Certainly be very wary of befriending and even marrying someone like that, because it might uh, also show a certain uh, dogmatic character about everything, every opinion the person has, so be very careful about that. Now, in saying that I'm going to be looking at this from a catechetical level, I mean, I'm going to be talking about things that are basically Catholic principles, uh, not going to be getting into a lot of documentation, uh, not going to be getting into the fine points of Catholic theology. Uh, that can be done, certainly if there are those who want to respond to this, and uh, critique what I'm saying here, uh, they're certainly more than willing to do so. In fact, I would encourage them to do so. And we can uh, respond to specific questions. But right now, I just want to give an overview of the traditional Catholic position. So when we start talking about the traditional Catholic pos position here, we have to s define some terms. We have to define what tradition is. What is Catholic tradition? And what is it to be traditional Catholic? Well, again, uh, we talk about Catholic tradition as um, being the, the work of the Holy Ghost, essentially, guiding the church throughout time. We see the church uh, guiding, uh, living her life. It's a history of the Catholic Church. We find her Catholic tradition is expressed in her history. And um, it is her history which essentially uh, gives her her memory her memory, uh, which is very important to her identity. Uh, thus it is with each one of us. Uh, you know, we talk about each one of us having a history, and knowing our history uh, is a great part of our identity. If someone woke up one morning and had lost all memory of his past life, uh, had amnesia or something, he would also lose, basically, a sense of his identity, who he was, uh, who he loved, who loved him, 
you know, the relationships that he had and so on, all of that, what he'd accomplished. Um, so there might be traces of skills left, but essentially uh, he'd have to try to rediscover who, who, he, who he was from who he'd been all the years before. And uh, the church's history is her memory. Her tradition is her memory. And those who want to radically transform the church into something alien to her, something uh, other or even radically opposed to what the church had been in the past, need to make the church forget who she was. <clears throat> they need to give the church a kind of uh, <clears throat> a, a terrible case of amnesia by, by making Catholic tradition go away. <clears throat> they want the church to forget her past and her history so they can basically recreate the church, <clears throat> even uh, sort of fabricate a past history uh, based upon their own fantasies, their own imaginations. <clears throat> this is what the modernists are trying to do. The modernists are basically trying to uh, uh, refashion the Catholic Church uh, into a church of the world. Pope St. Pius X warned us about this. Uh, back in 1907, the encyclical of condemning the errors of the modernists, he talked about the, the modernists actually um, being filled with pride and audacity, want to reform everything in the church. When I, when I say reform, I mean reform everything in the church. And uh, they want to reform, reform the church entirely. Uh, they want to give it a new form, essentially. And uh, St. Pius X said this would not only be the destruction of, of Catholicism, it would be the destruction of anything we know as religion. They want to redefine what even faith itself is, St. Pius X said. No wonder he called modernism the synthesis of all heresies. Well, when you deny not just one of the doctrines of the faith, or two or three, but you deny all of the doctrines of the faith, you have what is called apostasy. <laughs> and in subsequent documents, documents uh, St. Pius X actually used the word apostasy. Um, in fact, in his first encyclical in 1904, uh, I'm sorry, I beg your pardon, in October 4th, 1903, uh, Pope St. Pius X actually did refer to the great apostasy spoken of by St. Paul in his second epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, and said that that might apply what St. Paul wrote about the great apostasy to the Thessalonians um, 1900 years ago and more might well apply to our own day. So in any case, um, it, it is very clear what St. Pius X warned us about modernism and how wrong it is. He condemned its errors and he forecast that the modernists would be back to wreak havoc in the church even in our own day. And we see that happening now. Now, um, they would do that precisely by trying to dismantle Catholic tradition, destroy the church's memory, falsify and fabricate a, a new memory for the church in order to basically give her a new identity and give the church an identity crisis, as it were. Uh, we see this happening today. And uh, we see it happen especially with Francis at the helm of the, what we traditional Catholics would see as the church that came out of Vatican II. Uh, Francis was chosen to ultimately bring Vatican II to its conclusion, to its ultimate conclusion. 
and um, meaning that he is the leader, leader of the modernists in the world. He wants to basically, he's commissioned uh, by the modernists in the hierarchy to lead the charge to, to produce the church of modernism. Now, I realize that there are those who will not hear this, who, who do, will not allow this, will simply absolutely reject what I'm saying now, just out of hand. They will not hear it or not even consider the possibility of what I'm saying as being true. But I think they're in denial. I think they're in denial of reality. Um, if, they, if they say that what I'm saying is not true, let them establish that. Uh, I actually have something to read to you, uh, an excerpt from the Bulletin of Immaculate Conception Church of just a couple of weeks ago. I think it states things rather well, myself. Um, and it really does come down to the question of whether there is a crisis in the, in the church or not. Uh, it's entitled, For Francis, The Problem Today is the Restorationists. Last May 19th, Francis met in the Vatican with the European editors of Jesuit publications. They interviewed him for his thoughts about current events. One recurrent theme in Francis's remarks singled out what he termed the problem facing his church today. Not a problem, but the problem is how he addressed it which he identified as the Restorationists, whom he called those who continued to adhere to the Council of Trent rather than to the Second Vatican Council. It is both astonishing and revealing that Francis considers the Restorationists, that is the traditionalists, to be the, the problem facing his church. For Francis, the problem is not his enthroning and worshiping the pagan idol earth goddess Pachamama in the Vatican and the shrines erected to Pachamama in St. Peter's Basilica and other churches of Rome. The problem is not his ongoing appointments of LGBTQIA plus cardinals, nor his justification for giving the communion wafer to those openly living in adultery. The problem is not his heresies nor his continuing blasphemies. The problem for him is not his Vatican bank scandals and investing in the production of pornographic films, nor the rampant child abuse which has corrupted tens of thousands of clergy and their child victims. Not the ongoing Vatican bank scandal of shady investments by cardinals involving money laundering and embezzlement. The problem for Francis is not the hundreds of millions of dollars of the people's donations paid out in hush money, then in legal settlement, settlements for child abuse, not the drug-fueled orgies sponsored by cardinals, even in the Vatican apartments, which Francis provides for them. For Francis, none of these is the problem facing the church over which he presides. <clears throat> no, for Francis, the problem is the presence of Catholics who hold fast to the traditional Catholic faith and religion, as taught by the Council of Trent. Francis blames the Restorationists for adhering to the Council of Trent rather than following the Second Vatican Council. And thus, he acknowledges the contradiction between the two, the Council of Trent and the Second Vatican Council. 
And he also proves that Cardinal Ottaviani was right when he warned in 1969 in his Ottaviani intervention that the new mass abandons the teaching of the Council of Trent. Cardinal Ottaviani wrote prophetically about the new mass in 1969, quote, it is evident that the Novus Ordo has no intention of presenting the faith as taught by the Council of Trent, to which nonetheless the Catholic conscience is bound forever. With the promulgation of the Novus Ordo, the loyal Catholic is thus faced with a most tragic alternative. <clears throat> now, Cardinal Ottaviati made this point more than once in his intervention, <clears throat> that the New Order Liturgy, the New Order Mass, was not only a departure from the Council of Trent, but was opposed to it. And that it forced good Catholics, real traditional Catholics, true Catholics, to choose, as it were, between alternatives. <clears throat> this is exactly what Francis is saying now. And uh, I must say that one, one could not have said it any better than Francis did to prove what Cardinal Ottaviani predicted was going to happen. And now you have Francis saying his problem is that there are those that still adhere to the Council of Trent and do not follow Vatican II. So I would say, in my, for my, my own case, I, would, I think that those who deny that the Church is in a state of crisis are actually in a state of denial themselves. The fact is, in this state of crisis is merely a matter of facing reality. And uh, even uh, Benedict XVI pointed that out, he even pointed out the tragedies the Church was facing and uh, that Vatican II had not promised, delivered on the promise that it gave. And so he acknowledged the Church actually was in this uh, state of crisis. He himself brought up the question between rupture and hermeneutic, a continuity, uh, discontinuity of rupture, or the hermeneutic of continuity. Continuity. He was trying to say we need to show a continuity with, with the church's tradition after Vatican II, but he would talk about the rupture too. So, in other words, it's a matter of it's a matter of simply facing reality. Again, if somebody does not face that reality, I, I would I would think that person personally is in denial, I would try to show them the facts of the reality, the reality of that, of that rupture, the reality of uh, that crisis that the church is in right now. But if they will not see it, if they cannot see that uh, the church is in a state of crisis right now, I would say that, again, one would be very wary because there's a certain, I, I believe anyway, I, I can't see how it could be other than a, a kind of willful blindness to reality. When even, as I say, some of the New Order pontiffs have pointed out that there's a crisis in the church. I mean, even going back to the earliest days of the Novus Ordo when Paul VI himself said that through some fissure, the smoke of Satan has filled the sanctuaries of, sanctuary of God. <clears throat> he was uh, warning uh, whatever he meant by that. There are those, th there's a certain disagreement as to what he meant by that. But no matter what one argues his intention was in saying that, we all can agree that it was not good. <laughs> he was saying 
there's a crisis going on, a very serious problem happening. And uh, so, I mean, no matter what side of the divide one is on here, I think we have to agree that there is a crisis going on right now in the church. Francis says it's the traditional Catholics who are causing it. <clears throat> traditional Catholics find it to be quite the opposite. Now, again, going back to the question of what, what Catholic tradition is, having kind of diverted attention to what the modernists are trying to do, I just wanted to point out by saying that how important Catholic tradition is to her identity as the Catholic Church, because it is the Holy Ghost <clears throat> whose mission it is, sent by our Lord Jesus Christ from the Father into this world <clears throat> to maintain the identity of the church that Christ established, to maintain the church identical with the, the church that Christ established. And that is to be found in her identity. The Holy Ghost is the, is the power, is the divine power that maintains that identity of the church through her sacred tradition. And uh, when Catholics call themselves traditional Catholics, they're saying that, well, in practice, we follow Catholic tradition. We adhere to Catholic tradition. That is our guide. That is our standard that we follow. It is the standard by which we judge the changes that have been made in the church. It is the standard by which we judge our own conduct as Catholics, Catholic tradition. <clears throat> now, the Catholic tradition can be found ultimately in, as I say, her own history, uh, which is guided by the Holy Ghost, which is actually the work of the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> There's a certain confusion now <clears throat> in the uh, matter of, of use of the term tradition. Um, in, the, in the early days, after the New Mass came out, after, right after Vatican II, and certainly in the aftermath of the New Mass coming out, throughout the 1970s, when one referred to himself as a traditional Catholic, there was very little dispute about what that meant. That meant that he attended only the traditional Latin Mass of the Roman Rite, rejected the New Order liturgy, and that he followed the Catechism of the Council of Trent, and um, but, but we were saying that in being traditional, that's what he held to. Now, that changed somewhat. Um, there was about a 20-year period from about 1968 to 1988 that the New Order bishops, those are the bishops who came back from Vatican II and set about implementing Vatican II, <clears throat> they were determined to eradicate the traditional Mass. Um, those who are members of the fraternity of St. Peter and, and many, many members of the Society of St. Pius X, many of the priest members of the Institute of Christ the King are too young to even remember those days. Uh, many of them weren't even born yet at the time. <clears throat> um, and so they, they act as though the, the normal state was to have an indult mass approved by the Vatican. But uh, that is not true. That is simply fantasy because they'd have to go back to those 20 years from the, after Vatican II to 1988 or so when the um, Ecclesia Dei Commission was established and the indult mass was, was tolerated by uh, the Vatican. During those 20 years before that, they, every effort was made to completely obliterate, to annihilate the traditional Latin Mass of the Roman Rite. 
I know, I was ordained during this time, and uh, it was part of that effort uh, going into the dioceses around America, uh, in particular the Diocese of America, offering the traditional Mass when it was streng verboten, when it was absolutely forbidden by the local bishop. And the local bishop would come out and speak against us, priests who came came to offer the traditional Latin Mass, that this is absolutely forbidden, you must not do this, you must not go to that traditional Latin Mass, it is now forbidden. <clears throat> if uh, there was a priest who might have gotten special permission to offer the traditional Latin Mass, <clears throat> that is not only pre-Novus Ordo, 1969-70, but even without the John the 23rd, 1962 changes, that maybe there was an elderly priest who was consigned to a nursing home. Maybe there was a priest who was retired forcibly from a parish because uh, he wouldn't get with the new program. Maybe a priest like that could get permission to say a private traditional Latin mass in his room in a nursing home or something like that. That's about as far as they would go, though. The effort was to make the traditional Latin mass completely disappear from the public life of the church, and with the hope that it would disappear from the minds and memories of the people. Their idea was, if we can just make one generation grow up who had no memory of the traditional Latin Mass, we've won the day. For them, the standard is the new Mass, and that's all they will ever have known as Catholicism, the Catholic Mass. This was their goal. The problem was, there were priests who were being ordained by Monsignor Lefebvre, to offer the traditional Latin Mass, and they were offering Mass for the people to see and attend and worship. And um, so the modernists were not succeeded, succeeding in obliterating the Mass and wiping out the memory of the Mass. <clears throat> in fact, people were flocking to the traditional Latin Mass. They were often scandalized by the Novus Ordo, not just by the abuses, but by the Novus Ordo itself. They found nothing there to inspire them uh, with love for God, nothing there to inspire them in their faith, quite the contrary. And so there were people who refused to give up the traditional Mass, but not only that, there were young people who probably didn't even remember the traditional Latin Mass, but came to it and they found there the expression of the faith that they still had. Because they still learned the faith from traditional Catholic parents, uh, or traditional catechisms, and so that's where they found the faith expressed in the traditional Latin Mass. So the number of traditional Latin Mass, real traditional Latin Mass parishes were growing, that number was growing, and the individual um, uh, membership or the attendance at each one of them was growing too, it was flourishing. And it was when Archbishop Lefebvre consecrated uh, bishops that uh, for the first time it was uh, now an issue of granting permission to have the traditional Latin Mass. That's when the Ecclesia Dei uh, Commission was established. <clears throat> That's when uh, bishops were told that they could allow the traditional Latin Mass in maybe a certain place at a certain time, <clears throat> perhaps once a month, those who came to it would have to therefore agree that the new Mass was perfectly, perfectly Catholic, but they just preferred the traditional Latin Mass, but they accepted the new Mass as well. 
The requirements were very stringent and the controls were very, very ironclad initially <coughs> with this uh, Ecclesia Dei Commission and the Indult Mass back in 1988 89. Um, <coughs> the, um, you have the, that beginning then of um, the word traditional, traditional Catholic, began to refer to people now who would then go to the indult mass. <clears throat> they would go, be, be consider themselves traditional Catholics because the, they would go to the traditional mass or the 1962 <coughs> changed version of the traditional mass in, let's say, a new church, a new order church, where the new mass itself was said. Uh, so this would be a church that was dedicated to the new mass, part of a new diocese of the modernists, of the diocese, I say, where the new mass was standard, uh, or the ordinary mass, the ordinary form, as they started to call it. And so people began to go to a, a Latin mass, an isolated Latin mass, to a certain church at a certain time, maybe one Sunday a month, in the diocese, and uh, they would consider themselves traditional Catholics. But then the dioceses would actually begin to offer a Latin New Order Mass. You know, we might forget sometimes that the New Order liturgy first came out in Latin, <clears throat> and uh, that it had uh, many of the problems, uh, most of the problems we find even in the translations, uh, which is why most of the cardinals did not vote in favor of it in 1967, it was presented as the normative mass by Annabelle Bonini in the Sistine Chapel in October of that year. Two-thirds of the bishops did not approve of it, did not give their approval. But it was in Latin, and um, so the Novus Ordo bishops thought, well, maybe the Latin is the key. So if we can give the Novus Ordo in Latin, maybe that will get the people there. Now, whether the Novus Ordo bishops thought we'd fill the, we'll fill the people because we'll put the Novus Ordo and give it to them in Latin, and so they'll hear the Latin, and they'll think, oh, well, this must be traditional because it's in Latin. Well, it didn't really succeed very well because, again, the people did their homework, and they realized that the Novus Ordo, the New Order Liturgy in Latin, <coughs> is not the answer to their prayers, literally. They wanted the traditional Mass. And... Um, so, but even those who, let's say, would go to the Novus Ordo in Latin would then start calling themselves traditional Catholic because they're going to a diocesan church and they're hearing a Latin Mass. So they think, well, I'm, I'm traditional now because I'm going and hearing a Latin Mass, even if it is the Novus Ordo. So the, <clears throat> the idea of what it was to be a traditional Catholic kind of got stretched and stretched and stretched. <clears throat> So that finally, in the 1980s, um, um, in a, a letter that I sent out uh, talking about traditional Catholics, I actually received a response from somebody who was attending a Novus Ordo English liturgy, and um, everything was done according to the book, the Novus Ordo book. And so he said, we're traditional Catholics. What are you talking about? How can you call yourself traditional Catholic if you're going to that old Latin Mass? <clears throat> We're in the diocese. We're in the Church of the Diocese. <clears throat> we are following the new order uh, to a T, so that makes us traditional Catholics. So the, the, the term traditional Catholic just got to the point where it was almost meaningless at that point. 
But I think it's very important that we know what, what it actually means. I mean, <coughs> are the um, members of the fraternity of St. Peter, are they traditional Catholic? The Institute of Christ the King, is this traditional Catholicism? Uh, the CMRI, Congregation of Mary Immaculate Queen, is that traditional Catholic? The Society of St. Pius X, is that traditional Catholic? The Society of St. Pius V, to which I belong, <coughs> is that traditional Catholic? Well, let's take a look and see what it actually means uh, to be traditional. Um, first of all, let's, let's realize that when we're talking about the traditional teaching of the church, we, we realize that tradition is not just whatever anybody did. Anybody who is calling himself Catholic happened to do at one time or another, anywhere in the world. Um, there's a difference between how the individual person, you know, practices his Catholic faith and what the church authoritatively says and teaches that this is the practice of the Catholic faith. Uh, people in the past have made a distinction between tradition with a small T and tradition with a capital T. And they're trying to give you the idea, well, Tradition with the small t is how the Catholic people have lived their Catholic lives, but tradition with a big capital T is how the church authoritatively has adhered to Catholic tradition throughout the years. And uh, that might be a good way to put it. Is there a distinction? Of course there is. How could there not be a distinction between the two? I mean, we, we see this in our Lord's own life, in the Gospels, we see this. <clears throat> I mean, the apostles themselves, uh, Although apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, they didn't always live up to the, the, the teachings of our Lord. Our Lord re rebuked them for their lack of faith, um, and uh, time and time again he had to correct them for maybe a lack of charity or whatever. They were, uh, well, you know, we see that they were weak and in some cases cowardly and <clears throat> worldly and so on and so forth, brash. And, and uh, we see the transformation that was wrought in them on Pentecost Sunday with the coming of the Holy Ghost. But even then, we saw after that, we saw Peter who stood up as the leader of the apostles uh, and directed them and saying, now we must uh, choose uh, someone to replace Judas as one of the, among the apostles. And now we must choose deacons in order to serve the tables and do the acts of charity while we to preach the faith. It was Peter who did that, and the apostles accepted it because they knew that Christ, our Lord, had established him as the vicar, as his vicar here on earth. And yet even there, we find St. Peter failing in a rather miserable way when even after having been the first apostle to baptize uh, non-Jews, pagans, directly into the, into the faith and made Christians out of them by baptizing them immediately without receiving them as Jews and followers of Moses first. <clears throat> Peter, who had the, the uh, enlightenment from Almighty God to do that, was moved by God to do this, uh, by a special revelation made to him, and by angels who came to the, to the pagan centurion to send for Peter to learn the faith, and to receive the, uh, the baptism, uh, become a Christian fully. After Peter did this, he weakened. Even then, 
and under pressure from the Judaizers, that is the Jewish converts to Christianity, he shunned the company of the pagan converts and would only sit at table and eat with the Jews who had converted to Christianity. And it was St. Paul, as you know, of all people, who called him out and said that he was giving great scandal by doing that. So even there, we find that not everything, even the apostles did, not everything, even the head of the apostles, um, Peter himself did, were really edifying and were in keeping with the faith, let alone what the rest of the disciples did. Um, so it would be in the history of the church too. Not everything that Catholics do is worthy of being called Catholic tradition. Uh, certainly not when it is totally contrary to Catholic tradition and has to be rejected. So there, there is an authoritative Catholic tradition, though, that must, we must follow. We know that our Lord Jesus Christ gave his apostles a great commission. He gave them the command. And with that command, he gave them authority. He, he commanded that they go and they preach the gospel to all nations. And um, that, there we find magisterial authority, the, the, the teaching authority of the church to teach the faith as, as our Lord himself has taught it to us so that they would never deviate from the faith and that that power would be within the church to keep the church, well, literally faithful and adhere to the true faith of Christ. Uh, the apostles were given that and they, they gave it to others, the bishops who came after them. And then, of course, our Lord said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and here you have the work of the priesthood. Here you have the priestly power of Christ in justifying the soul from sin and sanctifying the soul by grace for the sake of ultimately glorifying the soul in heaven. <clears throat> so you find the priestly power, what we refer to as the power of holy orders, also given to the apostles. And then our Lord said to them, teaching them or instructing them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. So here you have actually commandments or laws or rules. Here we have the moral teaching of the church or the power of commanding. Um, and so we find that in the history of the church, generally the, the power of teaching the faith, the doctrines of the faith, and the power of commanding, not only faith, but morals and morals expressed in her laws, we find them referred to as the magisterial power of the church. And we find that uh, separately the power of holy orders, which is the power of actually justifying and sanctifying souls, saving souls, also is listed and is not included as properly, you might say, um, again, I'm trying to be catechetical here, <laughs> theological in a sense, um, the magisterial authority. That is a separate power that Christ himself as uh, Christ priest, the supreme pontiff, the supreme priest, gave to his apostles. Um, when our Lord gave them the teaching authority, he gave them the authority of uh, the, uh, the prophetic power of speaking for God, because he is truly the Son of God himself. And uh, when he gave them the power of commanding, he gave them the pastoral power to command. But the priestly power is the power of sanctifying souls. And uh, this is what we are actually 
we are very much involved in this in this matter right now of the application of these ideas to the church's life today because it was directly to the power of justification and the power of sanctification through the mass and the sacraments that the modernists went in order to um, basically try to transform the church. Uh, they wanted to bring a new mass and new sacraments, a new liturgy, a rite of, rites of worship into the church and use those then to transform the church. So it is really the power of holy orders that is especially targeted by the modernists, by the change agents in the church. So what I'm saying here actually has an application to what is going on right now. <clears throat> but it is interesting to see that Christ established the church in such a way <clears throat> that the power of holy orders can continue, can continue to function, and souls can continue to be justified from sin and sanctified by grace. <clears throat> even when you have unworthy men in the government of the church, even at the very helm of the church, even at the, as vicars of Christ on earth, as you have had more than once, certainly, uh, in the history of the church, unworthy men, whom the church herself has denounced as unworthy um, because of what they did uh, to the church and uh, how they used or abused their, their, their power, their authority. Unworthy men because of the way they lived their own personal lives. But there are those who simply failed to defend the faith who failed to defend the church when she was attacked by her enemies. The church herself has even on occasion come out and said so. In one case, even anathematizing after his death and excommunicating one pope even as a heretic, <clears throat> denounced as a heretic by a council. We just celebrated the feast of Pope St. Leo II. Read about him and you'll discover why he's a saint. He was the pope saint who presided over the council in the late 300s, 380s, which found a previous pope in that same century guilty of such egregious failure to defend the faith that he was excommunicated after his death. That pope was Honorius I. The church condemned Honorius for his failure, canonized St. Leo II, who anathematized and excommunicated Honorius I. That's all part of Catholic tradition. It's part of the Catholic life. And yes, it is the work of the Holy Ghost. The Church's judgment on that failure by Honorius I is all part of Catholic tradition. So popes can fail. This is not surprising. We, we'd see that the, um, the magisterial power of the Church to teach faith and morals to teach what is true and what is false, to teach what is good and what is evil, is essential to the church. We see the power of governing that is given to the hierarchy of the church is essential. We see the power of governing expressed in various ways. The Code of Canon Law, for example, is an expression of that power the, the Code of Canon Law is not the tradition of the Church. It is a function of the tradition of the Church. 
And we can only understand the code of canon law when we see the church herself pronouncing on her own laws and applying her own laws in practice. <coughs> in other words, we have to not only read the, the canons of the code of canon law to understand the church's mind, we have to see <coughs> how the church developed her laws and then how she <coughs> applied them and how she judged matters using those laws. That's the, the tradition of the church in action. So the, the code of law, canon law is a part of Catholic tradition. To detach it from Catholic tradition and make it stand alone <coughs> would be utterly, utterly uh, an abuse, totally. <coughs> and um, there's a much larger picture. The same with the papacy. To detach the papacy from Catholic tradition <coughs> would be basically to annihilate the papacy as an institution. Because the papacy as an institution of Christ can be understood, rightly, only in terms of Catholic tradition. The papacy is not Catholic tradition. It is a part of Catholic tradition. And it can be understood only in terms of Catholic tradition. The purpose of the Pope, the, the very purpose of the office of the papacy, is to protect the faith, to confirm the brethren in the faith, as our Lord said himself, <coughs> and not to invent new doctrines. Quite the contrary. But through the power of the Holy Ghost, to be faithful to the traditional doctrines, the doctrines that the church has, has, al the church has already be believed, always believed, the doctrines that have been found in the writings of the fathers of the church, the doctrines that the <coughs> earliest converts of the church learned from the apostles themselves, who learned it from Christ himself. <coughs> so the papacy exists for that very purpose. To detach the papacy from that purpose is to just annihilate the papacy itself as an office, uh, which is exactly what the, the modernists propose to do, which is, in fact, what they are attempting to do even now with Francis. So we have to understand the papacy is not Catholic tradition, but it is a part of Catholic tradition. If one were to ask, um, which has more authority, the code of canon law of the church or Catholic tradition? You'd have to say, well, the Catholic tradition, obviously, because the code of the canon law of the church is a product of Catholic tradition. If one were to say, well, who has more authority? Where is there more authority in a pope, a true vicar of Christ on earth, or in Catholic tradition? You'd have to say, well, obviously, Catholic tradition is the work of the Holy Ghost. And there we find the, the higher authority than any pope or all the popes put together because, again, the very papacy itself is a part of Catholic tradition and it would do violence to it and completely adulterate it to remove it from that very context of Catholic tradition of which it, it is necessarily a part. <coughs> the, so the Code of Catalan belong, belongs to Catholic tradition and can only be understood in terms of Catholic tradition. The papacy itself belongs to Catholic tradition and can only be understood, even, as a Catholic in, in terms of Catholic tradition. Um, so the Church renders this in some ways. I mean, there are certain standards that she follows. They, she calls uh, something a proximate rule and a remote rule. For example, the proximate rule of faith, to know what the faith is, is the magisterium of the Church at the moment, at that time. But the remote rule of faith is Catholic tradition. Now, <clears throat> which has 
a higher authority, the proximate or the remote. Well, the church says the remote, meaning the higher um, Catholic tradition, certainly has greater authority, as I say, than any, any pope, any true pope anywhere, more than the authority of St. Pius X, greater than the authority of St. Pius V, greater than the authority of any of the popes, or all the popes taken together, is the authority of Catholic tradition, because it is the work of the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> so you have then holy orders as the priestly power of Christ to justify from sin and to sanctify and ultimately for the sake of glorification of the soul in heaven. We recall that we learned our catechism when we were little ones preparing for First Holy Communion that our very existence as uh, creatures of God and <clears throat> creatures in God's image by nature and uh, by grace in God's own likeness, that we exist to know and to love and serve God. We all learn that, that God made me to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world so as to be happy with him in the next. <clears throat> now the knowing and the loving of God in this world have to do with the justification from sin and the sanctification by grace. <clears throat> the glorification is to be happy with God in the next world. So these concepts are all bound together. You can't separate them from each other, or let alone set them opposed to each other. Um, does canon law then express the, the tradition of the church? Well, of course it does. It, it would have to. If canon law contradicts the, the, the tradition of the church, then it would be faulty. <clears throat> it actually would be as though the church was contradicting herself. <clears throat> if you have the Catholic Church promulgating a law which contradicts her own tradition, <clears throat> then this Catholic Church would be guilty of contradicting itself, which it cannot do any more than the Holy Ghost could do. <clears throat> so if you find in the Code of Canon Law, as you find in the new Code of Canon Law of 1983-1984, contradictions from Catholic tradition, in other words, things being approved in the new Code of Canon Law, that previously, throughout all the Church's history, were condemned <clears throat> as being contrary to Catholic practice, <clears throat> contra omne fas, uh, as the expression would go, <clears throat> then you, you have a contradiction that it cannot stand. It cannot be Catholic. Something's wrong. And the fault is not on the part of Catholic tradition. The fault is whatever authority is behind that <clears throat> code of canon law <clears throat> that contradicts Catholic tradition. And it cannot be the authority of the Church. It cannot be the authority of Christ, because Christ does not contradict himself. Now, <clears throat> the, the, the Code of Canada Law that was prepared under St. Pius X, it was a reform of, of, the, of the Codex Iuris Canonici under St. Pius X. And then with the coming of World War I, <clears throat> it was kind of put on pause, so that it was only promulgated um, after World War I by Pope Benedict XV, <clears throat> sometimes referred to as the Code of Canada Law of 1918. Um, it had 2,414 canons. <clears throat> and the 2,414th canon, the last canon, which summed up everything else and which kind of crowned all the other canons, said in simple four Latin words, salus animarum suprema lex. The salvation of souls is the supreme law. And with that, 
1918 Code of Canon Law crowned all the other laws in the Code with the supreme purpose of the Church, the salvation of souls. The reason for the establishing of the Church, the reason for the crucifixion and death of our Lord on the cross, the reason for the Incarnation to begin with, the fulfillment of the promise of God to send a Redeemer. <clears throat> Summed up there, the supreme law of the Church is the salvation of souls. And um, now, since then, well, I should say in the course of the years afterward, there were other laws that were added to the code. And so you had a, a canon 2415 and 16 and 17. But nonetheless, that in the 1918 code, that uh, the, the summation of the law, the purpose of the law, the very ethos and pathos of the entire law of the church is to be found in Salus Animarum Supreme Lex. The salvation of souls is the supreme law of the church, and it is for that that all other laws exist, because it is for that that the entire church exists. That's the whole purpose of the church. <clears throat> and so the glory of God through the salvation of souls. So in other words, all laws must, must yield to that. Right? And we see this in the church's history again. We see this in the Catholic tradition. <clears throat> we see the church adjusting to what is necessary for the salvation of souls. You know, when we, call about, when we talk about something traditional, uh, we can sum it up basically in three principles. Okay? Um, something is traditional insofar as it, Catholic, it follows Catholic tradition. It seems simple enough. <clears throat> and what is Catholic tradition? Well, <clears throat> Catholic tradition is what the Church has always done. So, <clears throat> to be traditional, we have to be doing what the Church has always and everywhere commanded her faithful as necessary to do always and everywhere in order to be a Catholic. They're just essential things that define who is a Catholic and who is not, kind of a dividing line. Things that Catholics must do in order to be considered practicing Catholics. The Church has actually spelled them out. That's the first part. And the second, well, it's also equally important that we must never do what the Church has always and everywhere condemned as being opposed to the name of Catholic. So there are certain things that are so wrong, that are so much against the faith, so much against the practice of the faith and the religion, they're antithetical with being Catholic. And so one cannot do these things and, and be a Catholic. Uh, certainly not a traditional Catholic, because they're, they're di diametrically opposed, and even diabolically opposed to Catholic tradition. Uh, so a traditional Catholic uh, has to be someone who does what the Church has said Catholics must do always and everywhere in order to be Catholics. And a traditional Catholic must be one who will never do what the Church has always and everywhere condemned as being totally contrary to the faith, and therefore contrary to the name Catholic, and which would disqualify one from being a Catholic. Those are two large categories. <clears throat> but one has all these centuries and centuries of Catholic teaching and Catholic practice. And yes, we do know what those things are. But there's, there's another category. <clears throat> there's another category which again shows the Church at work in the world <clears throat> and very cognizant of the need to provide for the salvation of souls in changing circumstances. 
<clears throat> because laws are written for normal, you call, call it quote-unquote normal times generally. Um, <clears throat> that is standard operating procedure. Law incorporates standard operating procedure. But unfortunately, in this world, standard operating procedure cannot always be followed, even in the church. And the church's history shows that. Because she has the third category of what a traditional Catholic must do. And in her, in, in her tradition, the church has shown that there are things that she would not allow, that she would uh, forbid, even as sinful, in standard times, in normal times, so to speak, but which in abnormal times, the church says, are things that not only the Catholic people can do, but there are things they must do. Yes, the church's tradition also shows that and shows us what those things are. And we, we know what they are because we study the history of the church. We see what the church has approved. <clears throat> Someone looking back in history, therefore, might uh, <clears throat> look at something that a Father Michael Pro, Father Miguel Pro did back in the 1930s, back in the 1920s in uh, Mexico when they were trying to turn it into a Marxist state after the teachings of Lenin and so on. <clears throat> the church was being persecuted and the priests were being executed by firing squad for being, for being Catholics <clears throat> and functioning as Catholic priests. That's what happened with Father Miguel Pro, as you know. And there are things that Father Miguel Pro did <clears throat> that in normal times, the church would have said no clergyman would be allowed to do that. It would even be considered sinful or scandalous. But Father Pro did these things, and the church approved of these things, and actually held this up <clears throat> as an example of a heroic missionary priest in times of persecution. <clears throat> and uh, so we see the history of the church actually judging these activities. Um, already from the earliest days of the church, the times of persecution. <clears throat> we see a St. Tarsisius, they say, he was a young lad of maybe uh, 12, 13 years old. Um, some would have him a deacon because he was carrying the Blessed Sacrament to the prisoners who were condemned to death by the Empire of Rome. <clears throat> uh, that is not entirely clear, though. They say, well, he must have been ordained a deacon because he was given the Blessed Sacrament. <clears throat> is that necessarily so? Not necessarily so. Could it have been so? It could have been so. But it would have been very strange to ordain a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old a deacon, even at that, if you were going to give them the Blessed Sacrament to carry it past the guards to those who condemned to death in the prison. Certainly there were things that were done there that were not standard operating procedure of the church, but the church has shown that there are things that have to be done in her uh, times of persecution, in times of war, in times of the breakdown of communication, in times of the death of leadership, in non-standard operating times, then the church reverts to non-standard operating procedures. It is a fact. It is all part of Catholic tradition as much as anything else. It's a matter of record. And so we see how the church herself judges these things. And she tells her Catholic people what they must do in those times And so um, we see what we must do now, because those who see that the church is in a state of crisis have something to go by. The church has provided those lessons, those examples for us, 
those judgments for us. So the voice of the church and her tradition is still very clear as to what we must do if we're going to truly be traditional Catholics and follow the church's uh, tradition. How important is it? Well, we know that down through the centuries, this is what the church has told her people to do in times of crisis. Her message has always been the same. It's been unwavering. Hold fast to the Catholic traditions. No matter how <clears throat> confusing times may be, uh, no matter what anybody tells you, even popes or emperors or bishops, hold fast to Catholic traditions. And they were all going by. But St. Paul, Paul himself said again to 2 Thessalonians, in the, his second epistle to the Thessalonians, he talked about the time of the coming of the Antichrist, and he talked about those who would not be deceived by the Antichrist. And the counsel he gave them was, that they should hold fast to the traditions that they had received by word of mouth, that's tradition, or by scripture, by written word, that's sacred scripture, uh, tradition, that's Bible. So we have sacred scripture and sacred tradition side by side there. And St. Paul says adhere to these two things. And that's, what the, that's the Catholic thing to do. It always has been the Catholic thing to do. And this is exactly what traditional Catholics are, are intending to do right now. If they say they're traditional Catholic and they don't follow Catholic tradition, if they say they're tra Catholic, traditional Catholics and they deviate from Catholic tradition for the sake of convenience, then they're not really traditional Catholics. They portray themselves this way. They may think of themselves this way, but in fact they're not. And this helps to explain why there are even disputes and disagreements and even divisions among those who are calling themselves traditional Catholics these days, because although they all may call themselves traditional Catholics, they're not all actually following Catholic tradition. And there are those who point that out, saying we're not going to, we're not going to follow you or <clears throat> we're not going to follow your way of doing this because we find that you're actually betraying Catholic tradition even as you're saying you're following it. And we, we can prove it, it's patent, that in this you are not being faithful to Catholic tradition. Now the church, as I say, throughout the centuries has shown us the way. Um, there is a very uh, solid principle in Catholic moral theology uh, enshrined in Catholic history and Catholic practice throughout the centuries, and that is Ecclesia Suplet, the church supplies jurisdiction. The concept is this, ordinarily you would have the authority to function as, let's say, a member of the clergy in the church, a member of the hierarchy of the church, would come through the Supreme Pontiff, would come from the Vicar of Christ on earth, the Pope. <clears throat> there are times, though, when popes die, and months, maybe even years pass. Yes, there was a case when almost three years passed, when there was no valid pope elected. Chalk that up to the uh, perversity of the cardinals, most of whom were French, unfortunately, at the time. Uh, and who basically were holding the church hostage because they couldn't agree. But the fact is the church was without a pope for all that time. But the church doesn't simply evaporate. It's not a brigadoon that appears every 200 years for a day and then disappears again. The church is the church. I mean, the church <clears throat> bereft of a pope has the power now to choose another pope and to put him in position. That's what the power the church has. It's invested in the church itself to produce, as it were, another pontiff, a vicar of Christ on earth. So the church itself has that power. 
given to it by Christ. And um, the, um, the idea that there can be no jurisdiction in the church, no faculties, no power to, to exercise authority in the church, especially the power of holy orders, that there can be no power or authority given to exercise the power of holy orders to justify souls or sanctify souls, <clears throat> except that power comes down through the channels from the uh, supreme pontiff through his bishops, especially those who have ordinary jurisdiction, let's say in dioceses, or through major superiors, religious uh, congregations, religious house, uh, orders, I'm sorry. That is not so. The church's history shows that it's not so. The church's tradition says that the church herself can supply and does, in fact, supply that jurisdiction. The church, in the course of the church's, in the course of her history, and therefore the course of her tradition, has supplied the necessary power to administer the sacraments, even when there is no delegation or no um, authorization given by any human being here on earth of any ecclesiastical uh, position at all. The church acknowledges this principle. As I say, laws are written for the sake of standard operating procedure when things are quote-unquote normal. But even there, in the, in the church's own canon law, she has provided for times when there is confusion. She has provided for the times when things are not clear, when there is doubt, when there is uh, a, 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 a certain lack of knowledge about things. Um, can the priest proceed? Can he validly administer sacraments, notably giving absolution, confession? The church has acknowledged that, yes, there are circumstances under which this can be, even when there's not a crisis, even when there's not a crisis. Canon 209, I believe it is, actually speaks of these occasions. During normal operating times, there can be a confusion or a certain um, disorientation or whatever, and the church simply grants of herself this, this power to sanctify souls. So you, you take that and you say, well, in the church, in her, in her code of canon law, already acknowledges this and, 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 and grants this. So what must it be in the times of crisis when it's as though the people feel they have nowhere else to go? Again, this is uh, in times of, uh, that are very unsettled and unsettling, times of war, times of breakdowns, times of heresy, and so on. And the Catholic people do not know where to go or what to do. They can follow, again, the church's tradition in telling them by seeing what the church told them to do, told Catholics to do in the past, what the church <coughs> approved that the missionaries did in the past in such times, <coughs> what the church condemned in the past, not only in ordinary times, but even in extraordinary times of confusion and crisis, there are still things that are still wrong and that uh, no Catholic could do and justify under any circumstances. Again, this goes back to the things that the Church has always and everywhere condemned, saying this is not acceptable for a Catholic ever to do these things. <coughs> 
So, in any case, um, you know, trying to kind of give an overview of uh, traditional Catholic thinking from the level of the Catechism on this, <clears throat> as to the position we're in right now and what we should be doing right now as, quote-unquote, traditional Catholics, faithful to Catholic tradition. Now, when we get into the question, and I want to, uh, again, move along here, and I want to, don't want to keep you forever, but I, I just like to get to the point, it is a fact that the Church has acknowledged that popes can actually betray the Church. They can betray the Church, they can betray Christ, they can betray the faithful. Uh, the Church herself has actually judged popes this way. You uh, go to the case of Honorius I, and Pope St. Leo II, all in the uh, 6th century. I think uh, earlier I mentioned uh, St. Leo II providing a, presiding over a council in the late third, uh, 300s. That, I'm sorry, I made a mistake there. It was the late 600s, actually. Uh, the late 600s. About the year 632, Honorius I was elected. And um, he refused to solve a matter of the faith. Um, what it came down to, uh, trying to be brief, is there was a heresy in the East under the, under the jurisdiction of the Patriarch of Constantinople. And uh, this Patriarch of Constantinople in the 600s wanted to maintain peace. He did not want this conflict to be going on between the Catholics, over which he was supposed to preside as the Patriarch, the Catholic Patriarch, and the heretics. What was the controversy? Whether Jesus Christ really had a functioning human will. Now that sounds like a very obscure point in theology. It's not, because if Jesus Christ did not in fact have a functioning human will, he could not have willingly submitted to the Father and offered that act of obedience as man that would have repaired the sins of man. So this heresy actually was undermining the very doctrine of the redemption itself. The whole point of the, of the faith, the church, of Christ himself, being Christ. And uh, so um, what Sergius did was a kind of tactic. It was a subterfuge. He produced a statement of faith, a creed, which was very ambiguous, so ambiguous and so unclear that the Catholics could sign it, that the heretics could sign it, they could all agree to it, and because they could all agree on paper, even though they didn't mean the same thing, uh, it was like a, a putting a band-aid over the problem. <clears throat> well, it, there were other bishops who saw what was going on here, and they saw it was an atrocity. And uh, one of them was a man named Sophronius in Jerusalem. He's a bishop of Jerusalem. And he contacted, uh, he sent word to Rome, to the Pope, Honorius I, <clears throat> to tell him this was happening in Constantinople, <clears throat> and it simply was an attack on the faith. And uh, Sophronius was urging the Pope to rule on this and to condemn what Sergius was doing and to state the faith, the boldly, clearly, that Jesus Christ had a functioning human will and that he, as God and man, willed to die uh, as our Redeemer on the cross. And um, so 
Honorius did not do this. Honorius, again, was concerned with smoothing things over. And so he actually took the part of Sergius. There, there are those who say that there were letters from Honorius to Sergius in which Honorius pretty much uh, took the part of the heretics, actually, and implied that he himself believed the heresy. I don't think that's explicit, though. But what is known, and what was explicit, is that Honorius forbade the discussion of this question. He forbade people to argue this point. So instead of coming up and, and speaking the faith, clarifying the faith, confirming the brethren in the faith, Honorius forbade anybody to talk about it. The emperor liked this idea so much that he backed it up with a law which punished with civil penalties those who talked about it, those who uh, violated the pope's order of silence. Well, uh, of course, the Catholic leaders, true Catholic leaders, could not settle for that. Sophronius, Maximus the Confessor, and so on. <clears throat> they, as Catholics, would ordinarily have, you know, have, have obeyed without question. But in this case, there was no question of what was right and what was wrong. And Honorius was wrong. And um, why? Well, the idea was the Catholic people would be silent about the true, the true faith, and the heretics, of course, would not feel obliged to be silenced. And so they would carry the day, and they would be unopposed in preaching their heresy. Sophronius understood this. Maximus the Confessor understood this. This is what the Pope had done. He basically swept the Catholic people from the field, and completely abandoned it to the heretics. It was a criminal thing to do. <clears throat> and um, Sophonius denounced it, and he, he uh, gave the clarion call of the, of the true faith, and Maximus also, and so many others too, spoke up. This was like Latter-day Arianism, basically. <clears throat> um, in some ways even worse, though, in the damage that it would do. And... Um, so uh, there were those who paid the price. Uh, Maximus, the confessor, actually paid with his life for this, uh, being worked to death in the Crimea where he'd been uh, exiled, um, as an old man even. But um, in any case, uh, another pope, Honorius I died, and another pope took his place, and shortly thereafter he died. And another pope was elected to the uh, pontificate. His name was... Uh, Martin, it was Martin I, and he set about correcting what, what uh, Honorius had done. And he spoke out clearly. He defined the doctrine of the church about this, that Christ had a functioning human will, and yes, his human will, willed to die for us on the cross. And uh, he also paid a terrible price when the emperor found him in violation of his law and uh, sent his uh, delegation to uh, take the Pope prisoner, drag him back in chains to Constantinople, put him on trial and condemn him and depose him as if the emperor could do such a thing. And it was that way that Mar Martin I died as a martyr even. But he won the day. The true faith stood. And before that, that seventh century was out, uh, Honorius had been condemned um, in a council presided over by Pope St. Pope, uh, Leo II, and he was even condemned as a, as a heretic for failing to defend the faith. That's how serious this matter was. 
That's why when you look down lists of the, of the popes of those early centuries, you find saint, 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 and you come to Honorius, you find it's, it's like a repeat of what you saw earlier in the third century when you came to Liberius, the pope who excommunicated Athanasius, Saint Athanasius, saint, 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 and then you come to Liberius and he's not a saint. The church did not confer the title of saint on these men for their failures. So in any case, yes, popes can fail. The church knows that. St. Robert Bellarmine knew that very, very clearly. He spoke about that very, very clearly. St. Robert Bellarmine was second to none in his allegiance to the, to the papacy, to the Roman pontiff. He, uh, he wrote beautifully, powerfully about it. Uh, we have uh, statements that he's made on De Romano Pontifice in his second book, chapter 30. Here he asks whether a heretical pope can be deposed. Of course, the question to begin with was a pope can become can a pope become a heretic? And um, I, I won't read all of the. He gives five different positions on this subject. Only one of them says that a pope cannot become a heretic. The other four all acknowledge that a pope can become a heretic. And of those positions. Uh, three of them essentially say that, yes, if a pope became a heretic, he would, have, having lost the faith, he would lose the papacy. Um, St. Robert Bellarmine actually saw uh, the fifth position that he presents as being uh, the position that he would favor. The point uh, that I'm making here is that there are those who were actually not only... Um, Catholic uh, priests and bishops and cardinals. There were those who were doctors of the faith. There are those who are saints of the church, St. Robert Bellarmine. He was made a doctor of the Catholic faith uh, by Pope Pius XI in 1931. So you see, his position on this, that a pope can become a heretic, and by that fact, lose the papacy. He was not denounced by the church. Quite the contrary. Having stated this very clearly in his writings, the church actually endorsed him, actually canonized him, made him a doctrine of the faith. So those who would tell you that you can't even talk about this, no, it's impossible, they're not being Catholic. They're not being traditional Catholic. They are actually defecting from Catholic tradition in refusing you, your not only rights, but your duty as a Catholic, as a traditional Catholic, to follow Catholic tradition. Because what St. Robert Bellarmine is telling you here is Catholic tradition. <clears throat> he gives these five different positions. None of them was condemned by the church. So any, a Catholic can hold to any of them <clears throat> and be Catholic. And Robert Bellarmine himself tells you what position he himself favors. And that is that a pope can lose the faith, become a heretic, and can actually lose the papacy as he lost the faith. <clears throat> uh, we won't get into discussing all the ramifications of this. I mean, there's, there's the position of Cajetan, who said that, yes, a pope can become a heretic, and he can, uh, if he becomes a notorious or a public heretic, he can lose the faith, but he'd have to be declared, not deposed, but a heretic by the church, and that as a, sub, as a consequence of his heresy, he has lost the faith in a sense that he has died to the faith. 
And uh, that, that would have to be decreed by, by the bishops. St. Robert Bellarmine does not necessarily endorse that position. There are problems with these. Obviously, there are problems with any of these positions. There are problems that are going to arise from these things. My point is that they all form part of Catholic tradition. None of these were condemned by Catholic tradition. It is perfectly Catholic to hold these positions today. Even there are those who don't want you to and would um, blame you and condemn you for it. You're following Catholic tradition if you follow this. If you want to go to the Romani Pontifice, the Romano Pontifice of, of St. Robert Bellarmine, Book 2, Chapter 30, read it for yourself. It's available in English. There are at least a couple of different good trans English translations out there that you can read for yourself to see that this is truly a worthy Catholic position. <clears throat> I have a, a position on my own part that is somewhat unique, I suppose, and that is something that is known and is a fact, that a man who is elected by the cardinals does not become the pope until he accepts the papacy. Accept it. He has to formally accept the papacy. And I just question whether Francis could do so, because I don't believe he ever really knew what the papacy is or was. I don't believe Francis even believed in the papacy as an office instituted by Christ. <clears throat> so I don't think he, he could accept an office that he doesn't even believe in, doesn't even understand, and he has, he has proven that he doesn't understand and doesn't believe in. But that's my own thought on the subject. Is it right? It's my own thought on the subject. It's certainly not an un-Catholic to think that way. Um, and I don't know if anybody agrees with me, but it, it certainly doesn't make me any less Catholic, as long as I'm willing to say, this is my position, this is what I think. Uh, the problem Therefore, it comes down to um, untenable positions. Um, what, are, what, are, what are the untenable positions that are not Catholic positions these days? Well, I, I think there's a position that says this, that Francis, let's take Francis as the, exam, the current example. Francis is not the Pope because I say he cannot be the Pope. And everyone must Agree with me. Everybody must give external and internal consent to my judgment. In other words, not only must they outwardly go along with me, but they must assent internally to what I'm saying because it's my position, that must be your position too. That's what I think, so you must think it too. That is untenable as a Catholic to, to say, because I personally have come to this conclusion, and I'm convinced of it. Now, Everybody in the world has to agree with me in order to be Catholic. No Catholic can actually worthily say that. Certainly not Catholic tradition, that a person can dogmatize his own personal opinion on a matter. And that's what this is. Now, unfortunately, there are those who actually conduct themselves that way. They say, well, he's not the Pope. And because I've decided he's not the Pope, you can't believe he's the Pope. You can't even think that he might be the Pope, you have to agree with me, he's not the Pope. If you think he might be the Pope, you're, you're not even Catholic anymore, as far as I'm concerned, because you don't agree with me, in my, my opinion. Um, the, the dogmatic state of a conscience take this position. I don't see it as a Catholic position. There are those who say, he is the Pope, because I say he must be, he must be the Pope, and everybody must agree with me. Then they must give external assent by 
outwardly going along with what I'm saying, but even internal assent, they must agree with what I'm saying. Because I'm saying it, because that's my position. He must the Pope, he is the Pope, and he must be the Pope, and you can't question it. That is not a Catholic position either. I mean, we see from what St. Robert Bellarmine himself says here, <clears throat> that that's not a Catholic position. <clears throat> These people who have that idea should, should just face the fact, well, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I have the position, I'm, I'm convinced, okay, logically, by looking at the principles and by looking at the facts, that it's impossible that Francis could be a, a true vicar of Christ on earth, that he could be the true pope of the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, how can he be the head of the modernist Church of the Novus Ordo, which everybody acknowledges that he's a head of what we know as the Novus Ordo Church, and the head of the traditional Catholic Church at the same time? When modernism is the synthesis of all heresies, how can be one a pope? How can a man be a pope of both? It uh, seems to be a contradiction in terms. I've come to that conclusion, I say it's impossible, and that's my decision, and everybody must agree to me if they, they want to be Catholic. <clears throat> well, I mean, the Society of St. Pius X basically seems to have this idea, and uh, again, I, I don't see that as being a Catholic position, certainly not in line with Catholic tradition. St. Robert Bellarmine says that, no, this, this is a serious question. This is a serious question that should be taken seriously. And you can't just say, well, this is our position, so as far as we're concerned, you're not Catholic because you don't agree with us. <clears throat> well, one thing I think we can all agree on <clears throat> is that you, you might be absolutely convinced that Francis is not the Pope. <clears throat> I might be thoroughly convinced, absolutely convinced, logically, that Francis is not the Pope, theologically convinced, but I know for a fact that I'm not the Pope. <clears throat> and I know for the Pius X group, they're not the Pope. There's no pope there, uh, and uh, the head of the Society of St. Pius the, the, the X, and uh, the <coughs> council of the Society of St. Pius the X, and the priests of the Society of St. Pius the X, there's no pope among them. And so they can't make dogmas, and they cannot take their own position and dogmatize it, anathematize, anathematize anybody who doesn't agree with it. It's not Catholic to do that. Uh, St. Robert Bellarmine made it very clear that it is Catholic to raise the question, perfectly Catholic to raise the question. And he's, he also had a, took a position on it. So it's perfectly Catholic to take that position on it, as long as one realizes that it's his own, his, 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 his own personal position. And he can't make a dogma out of it, binding everybody else in conscience to agree with him in order to be Catholic. And there's another position that I think is absolutely uh, unacceptable. <clears throat> and that, that is a position that says, <clears throat> Francis is certainly and unquestionably the Pope. And if you deny, doubt, or question this position, you are anathema. <clears throat> and in theory, we submit to Francis. But in practice, we can refuse to do anything he commands. We can ignore him. And we can do whatever we please. <clears throat> and I, I think that pretty well states the practical position of the Society of St. Pius X, who will go along with the things <clears throat> that are favorable to them, but otherwise <clears throat> give no, no credence or attribute no authority to command them in things that they don't agree with. <clears throat> and I just find that uh, to be a very non-Catholic position. So. Uh, 
you know, one might say, well, the Society of St. Pius V does not <coughs> um, obey Francis. And I, I say, well, precisely, because we believe he is, at, at the very least one can say, <coughs> that there is a grave objective doubt as to whether or not he is or can be the Supreme Pontiff. I'm sure, you know, there are those who are convinced logically and theologically that he's not and can't be, but they acknowledge that this, they can't make that a dogma of faith because they have no authority to do so. But from a theological point of view, a logical point of view, they say, we can argue this, we can discuss this. From a logical and theological question, we can argue it and discuss it, and we should and we must. <clears throat> but to go out and anathematize others because they disagree, with the position I hold or held is not right. I know of a traditional Catholic priest who was very famous, <clears throat> very dear to me, and uh, in the early 1980s, I think it was about 1980, he took a very dogmatic position. And by the year, oh, getting out to 1990, he took the opposite dogmatic position. Um, and I think what that shows, I won't mention the name, but as I explained to him, that's why I think, you know, the idea that we can take a dogmatic position on this uh, is a mistake uh, because uh, we don't have the authority to do so. And we don't need it. And we do not need it. We don't need to go through all of this. What we do need to do is practice the traditional Catholic faith in its integrity. That's what we need to do. <clears throat> and um, the questions that are beyond us, we need to um, allow the church in her own good time, by the grace of God, to work out. Uh, Archbishop Lefebvre himself said this. He uh, wrote the, uh, the work, uh, The Masterstroke of Satan, Obedience. This was back in the 1970s. Monsieur Lefebvre wrote this. And he said there that there are those who question whether Paul VI is a true pope. Monsieur Lefebvre said himself there, they may be right. The church itself will have to decide this in the future. And um, there are those who say that Archbishop Lefebvre then retreated from that position. But I don't think he actually did. Um, and furthermore, um, I think one should read the last interview he gave, uh, which is available too at the drbo.com website under articles. You can read the English translation of the last, uh, uh, the last interview given by Monsieur Lefebvre, like his last statement of his position. I think it's very, very telling, very powerful. Uh, I wish every member of the Society of St. Pius X would read that today. Um, actually, I've been wanting the, those of the Society of St. Pius V to read it too, and have made it available to them. In any case, I'm sorry for being so long here, but you know, we're not treating of light matters. Um, one could write not only volumes, but could write libraries of books on the subject. In fact, the Church does have libraries of books on the subject of the Roman Pontiff. <clears throat> but uh, in any case, I just wanted to give a, an overview uh, of the traditional Catholic position, so I, I hope this is of some help here. <clears throat> uh, I'll just close with this one thought, and that is, in the New Order Church that came out of Vatican II, you do not find the unity of faith or the unity of worship or the unity of rule, even though they may claim 
to acknowledge Francis, again, there is just rampant disregard for any papal authority there in the Novus Ordo. <clears throat> but the only unity of faith, unity of worship, unity of rule is to be found among the traditional Catholics. <clears throat> and I would say, yes, even despite the disagreements <clears throat> that are there, and they're significant <clears throat> and involve significant things, even there, though, there is discernible a unity of faith and worship and rule. How so? <clears throat> well, as I've said before, I still believe it's absolutely true, if you've got all those claiming to be traditional Catholics <clears throat> together and asked what they believed, they would all say the same thing. They, they hold fast to the traditional Catholic faith as expounded by the Council of Trent under St. Pius V. Um, the Catechism of the Council of Trent, the decrees of the Council of Trent, isn't this what Francis is accusing us, restorationists of, adhering to the Council of Trent? And they would say, yes, it's true. I, I do adhere to that. Every man, every woman, every child, considering himself traditional Catholic, would adhere to that faith. Unity of faith. Remarkable today. And, um, and one would say, well, what about the unity of worship then? Um, the true Catholic Church must have unity of worship. And you would say, well, what do you want as far as your worship? And every one of them would say, we want the traditional Roman rite of Mass and the sacraments. That's what we want. <clears throat> Even those who took the 1962 pill, uh, John XXIII, <clears throat> as a condition for being allowed to have that, would say, we want the traditional Roman rite, uh, unchanged and unadulterated by the modernists. They would all say that. They all have, in principle, the same, the same worship that they really want. So there's unity there, too. And um, the question then would come to, well, what, what, about, what about rule? What about unity of rule? I mean, there you would have, say, well, we believe that Francis is the true pope, and others would say, well, we don't believe Francis is the true pope. <clears throat> and others would say, we don't know whether Francis is the true pope or not. So there'd be apparent, some real serious disagreement about that. But they call themselves traditional Catholic, which means they're actually saying that <clears throat> over and above individual popes or the papacy itself, <clears throat> there is the rule of Catholic tradition, which the church herself has given us. And they're saying that that's what they adhere to, that they adhere to Catholic tradition as the superior rule for life and for faith and worship and uh, of what it is to be Catholic. As I say, not all actually adhere to that, although they say they do and aspire to, not all do. There's still disagreement there and division there. But in principle, they recognize that Catholic tradition is the rule that we all should be following right now, here and now, and that's true. So I ask that uh, those who uh, see that the church is indeed in a state of crisis and acknowledging modernism as the cause of that crisis, to embrace Catholic tradition in its entirety, not just partly, not just mostly, but it's in its entirety. Embrace Catholic tradition in its entirety. And there you'll find the safe haven. There you'll find home for a Catholic soul. May God bless you all.